Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the 22nd episode of The First Exchange with me, your host, Lydia Daydahl. Uh, 22nd episode, unreal, and it is the first episode of December, so it is officially the first Christmas podcast of the year. <laughs> um, hopefully there'll be a, a few jingle bells in the background there. Um, I had a fantastic man in the first exchange seat today um, doing some incredible work over the last 40, 50 years with homeless charities in Dublin. Um, it was, of course, Father Peter McFerry. He came in to talk about the trust, the charity, everything that he's built up in the last 40 years, the work that they've done. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, the Peter McFerry Trust is a national housing and homeless charity. Um, they're committed to reducing homelessness and the harm caused by substance misuse and social disadvantage. So um, a really fascinating uh, chat with him today. We spoke about obviously what the trust is doing, the government's lack of support or help for the homeless crisis, the housing crisis, um, youth culture, his faith, the lack of faith in the up and coming youth today. Um, so really interesting chat, could have sat and listened to him all day. So without further ado, I hope that you enjoy episode 22 of The First Exchange with Father Peter McFerry. And before I let you go and listen, make sure that if you enjoy this episode or you enjoy any of our episodes, please jump on to iTunes, leave us a little review, five stars only, please. Head on to uh, Spotify, give us a subscribe. And then we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well, at The First Exchange. So send all the messages throw me the likes um, and any you know words of encouragement or I don't think you should do that anymore whatever it is send them on and um, we want to hear your opinions and your comments and your reviews we see them all so without further ado episode 22 with father Peter McFerry hello episode 22 father Peter McFerry thank you very much for coming in pleasure you're very busy, so I am delighted to get you in. All my guests that come in are always busy, but I know that you're super busy, so I do appreciate it. I have to pretend I am. I'm very good at pretending yeah. I'm busy. <laughs> um. Um, delighted to get you in. Um, a very good friend of mine who grew up in Ballymun um, when I started the podcast, um, Raymond Douglas, um, he said to me, uh, you know, when I was sitting down having a cup of tea with him, who should I get in? Who, who's who's on your radar? And he said, ah, oh, without a doubt, you have to get Father Peter on. And to my my own ignorance, I had never heard of you before. Terrific. <laughs> but let me tell you, I went uh, and I done my research and I was absolutely fascinated. Yeah. And shame on me for not knowing about the great work that you've done for so many years. My excuse is that I grew up in Waterford, so you're out of my jurisdiction. <laughs> we, we won't hold that against you. <laughs> very much. Um, but for our listeners that don't know a lot about you, um, this week uh, your name would have been very much into the public eye. You wrote um, a fantastic letter for the Irish Times um, in, directly in relation to um, home. Um, and I have it. I will read it out if you don't mind for our listeners um, that haven't heard it before. 
Um, so the, the 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 bit that's kind of online, it's called a tale of two cities, and the, the bit that came, everyone was screenshotting and, and was tweeting about this this uh, week was um, your words, sir. I attended court with a young homeless boy who had been charged with. Te- theft of a bottle of orange value one euro another homeless man was charged with theft of four bars of chocolate value three euro another homeless man was charged with theft of two packets of silk cigarettes a td on his way to or from his full-time very well-paid job in brussels stopped by at the dole errand to sign in so that he can collect his full fifty-one thousand six hundred euro expenses for his attendance in the dole yours father peter mcferry like so simple, but so to the point. Yeah, and... I mean, I, I was so angry, just so angry uh, that homeless people and generally people from poorer backgrounds get treated very differently uh, than uh, people who are who are better off and better connected. Yes. And clearly uh, that TD, Dara Murphy, clearly I was referring to, mm-hmm. uh, he felt a sense of entitlement he had an entitlement to 51,600 euros. Uh, but it was it was really taking money under false pretenses. Mm-hmm. That was money supposed to cover his expenses for working and attending Doyle Air, in which he wasn't doing very much. Yeah. Uh, so he was taking money under false pretenses. Most people would call that fraud. And yet yes, it was legal. Yes. It was legal. Mm. So what well-off people can get away with uh, can be far more serious and damaging to our society than what poor people do, but they, it's not considered illegal and they, mm-hmm. they, can, they can get away with it. So it's very much we have, uh, we have one country and uh, two very, very different uh, populations in this country. Uh, and if you're poor, you will suffer. Mm-hmm. You will suffer. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, you're talking there with the kind of the fraudulent <clears throat> end of it. For you, I mean, when I read it, the first thing that it came into my mind was with the work that you do, what could have been done with that 51,000 euro, you know, and how positively that could have impacted many lives. And yeah. here we have, you know, the people who are meant to be representing us, who are meant to be looking after us are basically, you know, ripping us off. Lining their pockets. Lining their pockets. I mean, a single unemployed person in this country gets about 11,000 euros a year to Mm. live on. Yeah. And Dara Murphy's expenses for attending the Doyle on top of his very well-paid salary Mm. are five times what uh, an unemployed single person gets to live on for Mm. a whole year. So I, uh, yeah, I get... uh, I just get very, very angry. And I hear a lot of stories. I work with homeless people, obviously. I they, I hear a lot of stories uh, mm. from homeless people. You know, they go into a derelict house to uh, sleep. Somebody sees them going in, calls the guard, they, and they get arrested for trespass. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> and that young fellow with the, uh, the bottle of orange for one euro, yeah. that case went on for about six months mm. because he pleaded not guilty. And he had to attend court real, regularly. Real cases. <clears throat> He had to attend court regularly. Uh, now, the cost of all that to the state would have paid for him in an hotel <laughs> for the yeah. six months. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a waste of money. But nobody is, uh, nobody seems to be challenging. And there's a horrific story today in the Irish Times about uh, a, a very brain damaged, a very 
uh, mentally ill homeless person who's been incarcerated in Mountjoy prison for the last year and, and living in horrific conditions. Nobody ever bothered checking his hygiene or his his bed linen hadn't been changed for months. Uh, it's, it's a horrific story. Somebody who was simply just dumped into prison uh, just to get him out of the way, basically, mm-hmm. because... Prison is being used very much as a uh, uh, because of the failure of our social services. Yeah. You know, seventy five percent of people in prison have an addiction, mm-hmm. and they're there because of their addiction. Yeah, and the addiction isn't addressed, and they come out again, and they say to me, "Look, I'm getting out to nothing. Uh, I'm go- going to be homeless. <clears throat> I'm going to have no money in my pocket. I'm going to have nothing to do during the daytime. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be back in here within a few months, if not a few weeks." Uh, so we are using prison as a dumping ground for people whom the social services should be caring for, mm-hmm. but aren't caring for. I mean, where where do we point the fingers for? I mean, there's there's, there's many fingers at many people for the, the the situation that we're in at the moment. But I imagine the the depth of of or you know what would be needed to do to fix all this would be so great. I mean, if you were given a magic wand in the the morning and someone said to you, this is, you know, we're going to do whatever you think is, is, is what will help us and what will work. What is it that you would put in place? Hey, the first thing I would put in place is, uh, well, I, I would try and solve homelessness, first of mm-hmm. all, and that involves a number of things. Yeah. It involves building social housing. We, in 1975, this country built 8,500 council houses. In 1985, we built 6,900 council houses. And in 2015, this country built 75 council houses. And that's a large part of the problem. If people lose their accommodation, say in the private rented sector, mm. because the landlord wants to sell the house, there's no council housing to move into. And so they end up homeless. So the first thing I do is embark on a massive council housing building uh, program. I would look at all the empty buildings that exist in every street, in every town and city in this country. And I would identify who the owners are Uh, I would offer them a grant, and the government do offer them a grant Mm -hmm. to bring them back into use, but very few have taken up that grant. And I would tell them we're going to compulsorily purchase it. It's obscene to have an empty building in the middle of a housing crisis. That's two of the things I would do. The third thing I would do is 70% of those who are becoming homeless today are losing their accommodation in the private rented sector because the landlord says they're selling the house. Yeah. you know, Focus Ireland will say they can house one homeless family every day, but there are three homeless families presenting every mm. day. So we need to stop that flow into homelessness. Otherwise, we're going nowhere. Otherwise, we're trying to empty the bath water with the taps full on. Yeah. And the only way I can see of, of doing that is to pass legislation to make it illegal just for the next three years till we get on top of this problem. Make it illegal for landlords or indeed banks to mm. evict people into homelessness, except in special circumstances where a tenant is selling drugs or something from the premises. Yeah. So I would try and address the problem of homelessness in a much more effective way. Berlin has a similar housing crisis to ours. They have just passed legislation requiring landlords to return rents to their level in 2013. Wow. <laughs> And they are considering a referendum to require the big international investment funds, some of them are vulture funds, mm-hmm. who have bought up thousands of of millions of euros of, of property uh, to return it to the state. 
Mm. I mean, that's the sort of radical action we need in an yeah. emergency, in a crisis. But we don't do radical action here. So that's the first thing I would do. The second thing I, th I think is, should be very simple. One of our prisons should be a drug treatment centre, mm, an addiction yes. centre. You know, and put in the resources and put in the people who are, who are, who are qualified to, uh, to, to do drug counselling and, and provide a service. Because so many, as I say, 75% of our prisoners uh, are in prison because of their addiction, yes. either for possessing drugs, selling drugs, or robbing to pay for their drug habit, or robbing to uh, pay off a drug debt. Mm. I would uh, make one of our prisons into a complete drug treatment centre and offer it to every prisoner who comes into prison with an addiction. In Sweden, if you go to prison and you have an addiction, you are guaranteed within four weeks of being admitted to prison, you are guaranteed a place in a prison treatment programme. Wow. Now, we're a long way from, uh, to that, uh, from that here. Uh, there is a small drug treatment programme in Mountjoy, mm. but it only takes a handful of prisoners out of 4,000, of whom probably 3,000 are addicted. Yeah. Uh, it only takes a handful of prisoners, uh, and there is no follow-up afterwards. So, It's incredible. Y you've been working... You know, for forty plus years, um, working with homelessness, with home homelessness, and, and with your charity, have you ever seen it this bad? Oh, cause never, never, ever been mm. anything like this. Yeah. Problem has not only has it uh, escalated, but it the nature has changed. Mm. Back in the fifties and sixties. You had about a thousand homeless people in Ireland. They were mainly elderly men with an alcohol problem yeah. who had worked in England all their lives, lost their jobs or retired, came back to Ireland, had no contact with family, had no friends here. And they were homeless and they were wandering from town to town. And there were these uh, county homes in most towns where they could go and they could have a bed for a few nights and get fed and have a shower. Uh, and then the problem changed in the 70s and early 80s to homeless children yeah. uh, under 18. And uh, when we opened our first hostel in 1979, the authorities didn't want to know. The mindset then was that the best place for every child to grow up was in their own home. Yeah. Now we know that's the worst place for some children to grow yeah, up. But yeah, that was yeah. the mindset. And so when children kept running away from home, the authorities' uh, attitude was, let's call the police, pick them up and return them home. Mm. So here we were opening hostels for these kids. And so I was seen as part of the problem. I was seen as encouraging these kids to leave home yeah. rather well, than a that, solution. Well, that was put to you at that well, time. Well, indirectly. They, yeah. I was told when we opened it for, I was told we don't see the need for this hostel. We don't agree with this hostel. We're not going to have anything to do with this hostel. Uh, so that was the mind. Then the problem changed. Then they were adequately looked after under the Child Care Act of 91. Every homeless child now who's separated from their family uh, now has a legal right to suitable accommodation and care. And that has addressed the problem of homeless children fairly adequately, not perfect, but fairly adequately. Problem then with the drugs came, the problem changed to young adults with a drug problem. Yeah. And that's still a major, major issue in homelessness. Uh, but now the problem has changed again. As I say, the majority of people becoming homeless are being evicted from the private rented sector. Yeah. Many of them are working. They don't have addiction problems. They don't have mental health problems. They're homeless because of a decision somebody else makes. Yeah. And they have no control over that. So families who are homeless now is the big, the, mm. the most urgent issue. You know, in 2012, there are no such thing as homeless families in this country. 
very few were becoming homeless and when they did they were easily offered a council house yeah. uh, today we the biggest age group the age group with the largest number of homeless people today is the not to four age group children who are homeless with their families wow. uh, and uh, so that's and you know you can you can you can mitigate the problem for homeless single people. You can give them a bed in a hostel. At least it gets them off the street. Uh, but you can't do that for a family. Mm. So it's 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 a, it's the huge huge issue now is is families families who are becoming Absolutely. homeless. And that's I want and, there, and uh, the irony is that those children in those families yeah. have no rights. Yeah. If you're homeless yeah, yeah. with your family, you have no right. You don't even have a right. To a, to a roof over your head at night time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mercy Law Centre, who have done a lot of work on homelessness in the courts, they twice have taken legal action to force a local authority to give a family a place to live because they were on the street. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, they lost. They were told there's no legal rights uh, for these families are for their children. And mm-hmm. that's a disgrace. So one of the things we would like is to get the right to housing into the Constitution. Yeah. Now, governments say, what difference is that going to make? I think it's going to make a huge difference. We have the right to education in the Constitution. And because of that, every child in this country is entitled to an education. And it forces the government to build schools and pay teachers to ensure that every child can get that education. If we could get the right to housing into the Constitution, it doesn't mean that the following day after the referendum, everybody can go up and demand the keys of a house, because mm. that's not realistic. But it would put pressure on government to give housing a priority and to ensure that they have policies and a timeline, maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years, but a timeline at the end of which everybody in this country would have the right to housing given to them Mm -hmm. and they would have safe and affordable housing. So we're very keen to get that into the country. Government are adamant they're not going to put it in. In fact, when you read government documents on housing, they never refer to housing as a basic human right. Mm. They will always refer to housing as a basic human requirement. And the difference is rights impose obligations, yeah. requirements don't. And that's why they won't put it in the Constitution, because that would impose obligations on the government and they don't want to be told what to do. Why do you think are the reasons why the government wouldn't do that? Put when... it in the Constitution, because yeah. they don't want to be told what to do. They put, in 1991, we brought in the Child Care Act. That gave homeless children under 18 uh, the right to suitable accommodation and to suitable care. And that, government were furious. That, that launched a whole series of high court actions. Children who were going to the high court saying, we're not getting suitable accommodation. Some of them were being put in bed and breakfasts. And they went to the high court. They were told that's not suitable accommodation. You have to do something better. Some of them are put in derelict buildings owned by the health board where they painted up a few rooms uh, and put in untrained staff to look after them. They went to the high court. They were told that wasn't suitable accommodation. So it forced the government to provide a range of accommodation options which the government never wanted to do. Mm. And it forced them to spend money on that, which the government never wanted to spend. And I think they learnt their lesson. They yeah. will no longer uh, give people rights. And uh, shortly after that Child Care Act came in, which gave children rights, there was a bill for people with disabilities. And there was outcry because there was no mention of rights for people with disabilities in that bill. Mm. Then the government fell and the bill fell with the government. And the new government brought in a new bill. 
And they said, we're going to give people with disabilities rights. And everybody cheered. Mm. <laughs> but when the bill was produced, what did it say? It gave people with disabilities a right to an assessment, but no right to a service. And mm. that's very much power for, a, for, for governments in Ireland. They will not give people rights because then they can be told by the courts what to do. Wow. That's so sad. Uh, it's it's cynical. It, it's yeah, totally cynical. It, yeah. I mean, the government is here to provide for all the people to and with a particular focus on people who are disadvantaged. Mm. But 100%. it's not. Their focus is on the banks and the big international investment funds mm. and the big uh, multinational companies who are coming here. That's their that's their focus. We see, um, oh. you know, obviously we're coming up to Christmas now and on post of just... Um, launched a new uh, TV ad where it's a family in a hotel and the, the sentiment is Santa will still find you even though you're in, in a hotel. It's a very overwhelming, very sad, um, uh, emotional ad to look at. Um, those of us who are, who are lucky enough to have a roof over our head, um, we're all aware, especially my generation, we're all very much aware of the, the homeless uh, crisis. We see th these ads, we see the people as we walk past, we do our bit to say, you know, hi, how are you? You give your, your this the spare change when you have it. But what more can people like me, like my, my generation, do to help people that are homeless and to, to go towards stopping this happening for any more families in the future? Well, as you say, you mentioned two of the things you can do. One is when you pass by a homeless person, just say hello. Yeah. Well, that makes a huge difference. Can you imagine sitting there, thousands of people passing you by mm. as if you were invisible? Yeah. They're not even looking at you. Mm. <laughs> and that makes you feel like a non-person. You don't exist. So if somebody just comes up and says, hello, how are you? Hey, what's your name? My name is, mm. you know, that's street. And that's very important. It sounds so trivial, but it's very important. Mm. And the other thing you mentioned, fundraising. Yeah. We are raising 10 million this year to keep our services going. Focus right. Ireland have to raise even more. The Simon community have to raise money. So fundraising can make a difference, mm. but it cannot solve homelessness. Yeah. Homelessness is a political problem and it must be solved politically. So we have to put pressure on our uh, TDs and on our government to give ho make housing a priority and introduce policies that will be effective. The right to put the right to housing into the constitution is one uh, part of that, but we have to put, the government's priority is not homelessness. Uh, the government, um, the bank, uh, the banks, the government's priority are banks. Mm -hmm. The government owns shares in all the banks. It owns a lot of shares in one of the banks. And their interest is the banks making profits because then when they come to sell the shares, they'll get more money. Mm. So that's their concern. So they're delighted to see house prices rising. Delighted. Because then houses that are in negative equity move into positive equity. And when the banks repossess them, they'll get more money for mm -hmm. selling them. They're on the side of the big international investment funds who have now bought up 30 billion euros worth of property in Ireland. Uh, and the cuckoo funds now are the, uh, the latest to come in. And they buy up a whole estate and they will rent it out. But they're going to rent it out at the top end of the market. Yeah. They're not, and those houses and apartments are no longer available for first-time buyers to, uh, to buy. Uh, they're available to make profits for these international investment funds. 
And when they came in first, the government welcomed them in and the government gave them all sorts of tax incentives. Mm. Those are big investment funds don't pay corporation tax. They don't pay capital gains tax in in many circumstances. And many of them registered as charities so they didn't pay any tax on their profits. (laughs) They came in here and are making billions of profits almost tax free. So that's where the government say mm. that's where the government and the government are siding with landlords, yeah. you know, they, mm. they are the and uh, there are many landlords. I accept there are many landlords who are struggling financially. They bought in the middle of the Celtic Tiger uh, and the rent they're collecting doesn't go near repaying the, the mortgage on the on the on the house uh, because 50 percent of the rent they collect goes straight back to the government in tax. Mm-hmm. But so. So when Simon Coveney was Minister for Housing, he wanted to bring in a rent cap and he wanted the rent cap to be uh, to be in line with inflation. And inflation at that stage was was virtually zero. Mm. The Minister for Finance wouldn't let him do that. Uh, and so they had to compromise on 4%, a rent cap of 4% per annum for three years. Now, at that time, nobody's wages were going up by anything like 4%. Mm, yeah. But the Department of Finance, they wanted the, the landlords to be incentivized. Uh, and so they insisted on uh, this 4%, which effectively meant that many people could no longer afford to pay the rent mm. once it goes up by 4%. So, you know, the, the government are on the side of the, the wealthy, they're in the mm. government are on the side of the powerful, uh, and those the wealthy and the powerful can lobby and lobby very effectively on government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're the people that government ministers play golf with. Absolutely, absolutely. Has the government ever, over the years that you've been so heavily involved in in, in what you do and and the great work that your charity has done, have they ever welcomed you in for a conversation on on even how this can be tackled or how can we help, how can we give back to you or recognise the great work that you've done? Well, when Owen Murphy came into the job, uh, yes, I was one of the first people he met. Mm-hmm. Haven't met him since. <laughs> but in fairness to the government, there are there is an umbrella group of the voluntary agencies who work with uh, homeless people, and they do meet government on a regular basis. Yeah. And now I'm not part of that. I I stay outside of that because our organisation is represented by our CEO, yeah, Pat Doyle. Uh, so I don't a- attend those. I don't know what goes on, but clearly they're not making much of a difference. No, not at all. Um, this might be, and you, you I mean you don't have to to answer it, but um, a big thing for youth culture at the moment is voting and getting out, trying to get the youth out to vote. And a lot of um, our youth today feel like, you know, what's the point? We're going to get screwed over either way. In terms of when the the campaigns come up, when elections come through, are you vocal about who you vote for or who you would like people <clears throat> to vote for? Because obviously the government well, that are in are. I don't want to tell people how to vote and I, I won't tell people how to vote. However, yeah. what I would say is we expect accountability. Mm. And if an individual does something wrong, we expect accountability. Yeah. I think we need to expect accountability of government. And clearly, this housing crisis has spiralled out of control of this government. Mm-hmm. The hospital crisis has spiralled out mm-hmm. of control of this government. And I think we ought to hold them responsible. Yeah. And I think it's time for us to say, look, you have not been able to address these two crucial issues in people's lives, health and housing. It's time for you to accept that you uh, 
or it's time for others to <laughs> say that you that you have failed and we want to try something else. Yes, 100%. Um, while we're on the topic of news and, and, and what's current, um, you would have obviously, I assume, heard about the backlash about the, the um, proposal for IFSC for this white water rafting um, outdoor... Yeah, adventure area, um, and that the, the people that are kind of in in the area of um, is it what, what area does it come under in the government? Sport and yeah. recreation is mm. it? Is that what it's under? Or, Probably, yeah. Um, that you know the, the, the outcry is basically twenty two million for a white water rafting outdoor facility. Um, while we're in the middle of a homeless crisis like this, now the people who have have projected this to go ahead, they've done uh, numerous interviews last week. And they're saying, you know, that there's a certain amount of money that's allocated to sport and leisure and it has to be used and different things. And it's just how protocol goes. But the outcry is still there and it just seems absolutely insane. Like to the point where, you know, people thought that it was a water for whispers article or a joke article, you know what I mean, coming up. Uh, do you have any opinions on that or? I don't know enough about it, to be honest. Yeah. If, the, <laughs> if that, that money spent was going to ensure that there would be a substantial return to the government in terms yeah. of profit from that venture, then I wouldn't be necessarily be against it. Mm. But I don't know what the uh, the uh, the income expenditure uh, yeah. uh, thing uh, thing is in relation to it. I know the income is twenty plus million. Yeah. I don't know what is being expected to return from that. But if we could double that over maybe five or ten years, then maybe that's not mm -hmm. such a bad thing after all. Absolutely. Um, when I was uh, doing my research on you and I was watching a lot of um, YouTube videos and you've so many talks and, um, you know, b awards, receiving awards and different things over the years, RTE features and everything over the years. Um, one thing that struck me was... Um, in all of them, you wanted to, to hit home or you wanted to get the point across that in terms of homelessness and the people who are homeless, um, even if they are addicted to drugs, why are they addicted to drugs? And that's something that um, is very interesting to me in terms of <clears throat> why do people do things that they do in their lives that aren't necessarily good for them um, now it's not just talking about drugs drugs are just one of the things and you brought it back to what was happening or what had happened to them in their childhood and childhood trauma is such a massive part of the development of adults and how we are and function and how we respond and react um, can you talk to me about some of the the the, um, the experiences that you've had with people who have come into you that have had or experienced childhood trauma like that yeah, I mean, there are many reasons why people become addicted, mm. but the majority of homeless people that we encounter are using drugs because they cannot cope with the traumas of their childhood. Mm -hmm. Most common trauma, of course, is sexual abuse yeah. as, a, as a child, but there could also be violence from a father or extreme neglect uh, or drug-taking parents. One young man... Uh, told me he used to sit in the kitchen every night when he was 13 years of age watching both his parents injecting heroin. Um, now, clearly, he wasn't receiving the care that mm. he should have been receiving. He was certainly wasn't receiving the emotional care yeah. that he should have been receiving from his parents. Uh, 
So there's a lot of trauma and people, uh, the only way they have of coping is to take drugs. Yeah. <clears throat> if they didn't cope, if they didn't take drugs, probably some of them would have killed themselves. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a response and the only response they know yeah. to, uh, to trying to cope with those traumas. And again, I'd be very critical, those traumas were never addressed. It was never the counselling and the therapy available to, mm-hmm. to people like that uh, when, they were, when, they were, when they were growing up. So people do, it's, uh, sometimes people look at uh, drug users or homeless people and say, ah, well, they made bad choices. It's yeah. their own fault. They made their bed, let them lie on it. But it's not as simple as that at mm-hmm. all. Uh, the drugs are only a symptom often of much deeper problems. And those deeper problems have to be addressed. And they have to be addressed by counselling and therapy and support. Uh, otherwise, they're not going to come off drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's... Uh, you know, everybody has a story. You have a story. Yeah. I have a story. Yeah. And everybody's story is different. Mm-hmm. And every homeless person and every drug user has a story. And those stories, many of them would bring tears to your eyes. Yeah. Uh, but we don't see the story behind the drug user. We don't see the story behind the homeless person. We just see somebody who's causing a problem yeah. to our society. And uh, I think we need to, uh, what I would love to do, and I'm thinking of it uh, if I can get the the personnel and their resources is to maybe take 30 homeless people and allow them to tell their story mm. and to publish that in a book and I think that would be very powerful Absolutely. and it would open people's eyes to uh, to the reality of life for, for people that otherwise they may want to have nothing to do with mm. or even worse they may simply uh, uh, reject when when um I'm trying to get an understanding of the charity and your daily work and, and what happens. Uh, who, who is the person who walks through your door? Um, is it a homeless person? <clears throat> Are they more often than not with a drug addiction looking to get clean, looking to get themselves sorted? Are they families? Who, who's a typical... We've dealt with a wide range of homeless people. We dealt with a young man. He was a, He had a part-time job. He was paying €900 Euros a month for his rent. Landlord comes along, this is before the rent caps came in. The landlord comes along and he says, I'm raising the rent by 50% to 1,350. He had no way of paying that. From his part time wages, he gets evicted and he ends up in our homeless hostel. We dealt with the father of two children, two wonderful children, doing a great job. He was a single father and never missed a month's rent in his life. The landlord comes along and he says, I'm selling the house. You have to move out. Himself and his two children become homeless. So we deal with them, but the majority of, excuse me, of our time is taken up mm-hmm. with people who are uh, who, who have an addiction or a mental health because they're the ones who need us. Yeah. That father with two children, right, we were able to give him an apartment. Mm-hmm. So all he does is move in. He doesn't need us <laughs> hassling yeah. him or uh, yeah. Yeah, coming down, checking up on him. No, he just gets on now with his life. It's the ones with the addiction who need that support mm-hmm. and they take up 80% of our time. Uh, what is so, this, what is the support network that you provide? What is well, what is stage one, obviously, to get well, clean? Well, people come into our uh, into our drop in centre yeah. that can often be the first port of call. In that drop in centre, we have a day program for uh, for drug what we call drug stabilisation. So they can attend the day program. It's only three afternoons a week. It's very gentle, uh, but it begins the process of addressing your drug problem. Mm-hmm. And then we have three residential drug treatment programs, 
one for coming off tablets, one for coming off uh, methadone or cocaine or crack, mm-hmm. uh, and then a treatment program when you have come off everything. Um, then we provide a range of hostels for people. We have 25 hostels all over Dublin and surrounding, uh, where we will have a 1,000 homeless people every night staying in the hostels. And uh, some of those hostels are for people who use drugs. We know they use drugs. Uh, they're not supposed to use drugs in the hostel, but you can't stop them. Yeah. <laughs> they can go into a toilet and use a drug. There's nothing they can course, do about it. Yeah. Uh, or they can use a drug at 3 o'clock in the morning in their bedroom, and mm-hmm. uh, we can't do much about it. <clears throat> so we have hostels for people who use drugs. They are also entitled to accommodation. They're entitled to a place to live, mm-hmm. same as everybody else. And for some of those people, we will give them an apartment. And we will say, this is yours for the rest of your life. You don't have to address your addiction. You don't have to address your mental health. That's not a condition. Mm-hmm. The only two conditions of staying in this apartment is you pay your rent and you don't, you don't interfere with the neighbours. You don't cause any problems with the neighbours. Mm-hmm. And we will work with them. And you know what happens then is you find that because they now have a nice, safe and secure place to live, they want to begin addressing their addiction problems or their mental health problems. Yeah. And so we found that very successful. Uh, so we have a range of, of hostels. We have drug-free hostels. We have hostels for people who are coming out of drug, uh, mm-hmm. drug treatment. Uh, <clears throat> we have one hostel for young people who are under 25. So we have a range, a range of hostels uh, and we have about 400 apartments where we mm-hmm. can give a homeless person or a homeless family the key of the door and say, this is yours for the rest of your life. You have a lifelong tenancy. You may n- never need to become homeless again. So they can have that for as long as they as they as they want mm-hmm. for life if they need it. But sometimes if they're a single person, they may get into a relationship and have a child and they need to get a bigger place yeah. and we will help them get a bigger place. But they have it for life if they mm-hmm. if they if they want to. Uh, and that's really the focus for us is increasing. We want to increase the number of apartments or houses we have by 50 to 100 every year. That's as much as we can manage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only a drop in the ocean, but it's as much as we can manage. But the solution to homelessness sounds cliched, but it's so obvious. The solution to homelessness is give people a home. Yeah. Putting people in opening hostels doesn't solve homelessness. Mm-hmm. All it does is get people off the street, but they're still homeless. So our focus is on resolving homelessness by giving people a home, and we want to provide as many apartments and houses as we can afford to do. Absolutely, it's incredible. You know, 40-odd years um, working in homeless in your charity. Can you take me back to the early days and why was it or what was it that was inside you that compelled you to start this work? Hey, I got into this by accident. I never intended spending my life. Do you believe it was an accident or do you believe that it was your calling? If you believe in God, I call it providence. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe in God, I call it coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Something for everyone. But uh, <laughs> I uh, got into it by accident. I was working in the inner city. It wasn't with homeless people. It was a very small problem at that time. <clears throat> but I was working in the inner city. And then I came across a nine-year-old kid sleeping on the street. So we said we already had a youth club for all the kids in the area. We had a craft centre. They could make lovely crafts. They were able to sell them, make a few bob. Uh, and we were able to employ some of the young people making the crafts. So we said, look, we have a youth club and we have a craft centre. We have employment schemes. Let's get a hostel mm-hmm. for some of these young people. So we did. We got a house. We brought, took in six boys. Why boys? Because there were no girls on the streets in the 70s. That yeah. only came later. 
So we took in six boys and I said, well, I'll run this for a couple of years and then I'll go off and do something else. <clears throat> so I ran it for a few years and then the young people were leaving it at 16, 16 and a half because they were growing out of it and they were going back in the streets. So I said, well, look, we're going to have to open a house for the over 16s. So we did. And I said, I'll run this for a couple of years and then I'll go off and do something else. Mm. And then the numbers grew and grew and grew. We had to open another hostel. Then the Child Care Act that I mentioned came into, into, into force and we had to separate the under 18s from the over 18s. And then the drug problem hit Dublin. We had to open a detox centre. So I never planned anything in my life. I just went from year to year and said, right, we'll give this another year and we'll see mm -hmm. what happens. Uh, and the thing grew into the the organisation that we have today. About 15 years ago, uh, when I was 60, uh, decided I I was running everything. I was the CEO, I was the financial uh, person, I was the electrician who changed the bulbs, I was everything. <clears throat> and so it was clear if I died, the whole thing would collapse. Yeah. So we decided, right, we've got to put this on a sustainable footing. So we employed a CEO mm -hmm. uh, who brought with him an administration staff and they now run the organisation. Uh, I have nothing to do with the <clears throat> with the financial reporting or mm -hmm. I have nothing to do with the organisation of the of mm -hmm. the of the trust. Uh, and, and so and we have a wonderful man uh, management uh, committee board of directors. So if I died in the morning, this organisation will just continue quite happily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so my role now is being with homeless people in our drop-in centre. Yeah. Homeless people come in, I talk to them, I listen to them, uh, maybe advise them, try and help them maybe to get accommodation or get into drug treatment. Mm -hmm. But my role now is face-to-face -face work with homeless people. And that's could what I want to do. I don't want to be... Well, this uh, is what I was going to ask uh, you. Could, uh, you. could you have imagined yourself, you know, not being so hands-on and maybe stuck behind a desk and be answer the... Yeah, be you horrible. want to be there. I, I couldn't do that, no. Even mm -hmm. when I was doing all that, my door, I, I was doing it in our drop-in centre and my door was always open. So I'd be trying to balance the books and some homeless person would come in and want to have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm cursing him and saying, look, I'm... Uh, <clears throat> but then I say to myself, why am I trying to balance the books? Yeah. I'm trying to balance the books because it's for homeless people. Mm -hmm. So here's a homeless person who wants to talk, so I've got to listen to him. Yeah. So that's the, that was the priority always for me, is the face-to-face -face, uh, contact with homeless people. Uh, and that's where you learn what happens. That's what energizes me, mm -hmm. and that's what informs me. If people, homeless people coming in off the street, coming in out of hostels, they tell you what's going on. Yeah. They tell you how things are changing on the street. Uh, they tell you how the police are interacting with them. You hear all these stories, mm -hmm. uh, and that is, uh, if I didn't have that, I would go stale yeah. very, very quickly, and I'd be no use to homeless people. Mm -hmm. So it's it's that interaction with homeless people that both gives me the knowledge as to what's happening, yeah. uh, and also the. Uh, the, the impetus to, to stay with it and do do something about it. It's very interesting listening to you talk there where you're saying about, you know, I'm getting um, an understanding of, of the role as you're speaking. And it seems that the most important part of your role in the charity is to be an ear, is to listen and to hear and to, to be that person who is sitting down and saying for 10, 15 minutes today, I'm going to listen to what's going on in your life and and yeah. and and what's going on and let's see if we can you know help or, 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 or whatever it is i'm here for you and 
it, it kind of goes back to that sort of like, um, you know, human need, I suppose. We all feel the need to be to be wanted, to be needed, to be listened to, uh, that somebody is there. Um, w- would you agree with that kind of, you know, in all your work and what you've learned is that basic human need is to have somebody there, a, yeah. a shoulder to cry on, so to speak? Yeah, one of the things about homelessness is you're disconnected. You're disconnected yeah. maybe from family or disconnected from friends. Very hard to have close friends when you're homeless. Mm-hmm. You have mates who yeah. are coming in and out of your life, but your life is so chaotic and changing. Uh, it's very hard to maintain a close relationship with close friends. So disconnectedness is very much part of of being homeless. And uh, having our place, our drop-in centre, that's connected. That's Mm. that's their connection. And they come in and they know I'm there and they know they can talk to me. And uh, they they do often want a shoulder to lean on uh, or advice or support. So we try to provide that level of connectedness that uh, that people need. If they mm-hmm. have a problem, they know where to go. Yeah. If they have they want to uh, complain, they know where to go. Yeah. Uh, if they're feeling down, they know where to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to provide that connectedness. Yeah. It's, Do you um, ever sit back in quiet moments and think about your life and, and the direction that it's taken? and regret anything for a moment or think I wish I or I would have likened to have gone and done this or um you know I wish I had tried this when maybe I was younger or does that ever come into your mind no Never. if I was starting again I'd do exactly the same yeah. my one regret is that I didn't have the knowledge and the mm. uh, uh the, say the uh, to that I have now. So we made loads of mistakes. Yeah. I mean, when I opened our first hostel, sure, we hadn't a clue how to run a hostel. <laughs> We'd yeah. never done anything like that before. There was nobody there who could tell us how to do it. <clears throat> so we, we made we made loads of mistakes. Uh, but uh, so I would like to now have the knowledge I have when I. Yeah. When, but of course, that's as they say, mm-hmm. youth is wasted on the young. Absolutely. <laughs> if you had one. You know, if you had to give someone one piece of advice of everything you've learned so far, could you could you put could you boil it down to one one sentiment? Uh, it's all about caring. Mm. Yeah, almost people come into me now, and you know they might say, "Look, I haven't had a bed for the last three nights. Can you get me a bed tonight?" Sometimes they can, but sometimes they can't. Mm. But uh, they'll go away saying, "Well, thanks anyway for listening." It's about caring. What they want is somebody to care. Yeah. And that's more important than getting to bed for the night, actually. Mm. They want to know that somebody cares. We all need to know that somebody cares. Uh, And they often don't have anybody who cares. So the most important thing is that we communicate to homeless people that we care. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the great things about our organization. People come in to me and when they're living in one of our hostels, they'll come in to me and they'll complain about everything in the hostel. But they'll say, but you have great staff. <laughs> and that means the staff really care, you yeah, know. And, yeah. and that's, once I hear that, I say mm. everything's okay. The do you re- look for anything, be... do you look for anything in your staff? Is there a, a require? is there a, an emotional requirement well, of some sort? No, I mean, they have to, um, anybody who applies to the job obviously is, yeah. uh, has a concern. 
They have to be non-judgmental. I'd say that's the most important thing. Yeah. If people are judgmental about homeless people or drug users, if they any sense of looking down on them or consider, mm. it's considering them to be uh, damaged people, mm. no, that's not going to work. Uh, yeah. So and I always say that to our new staff. You know, one of the most important things is to be non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. And I say, look, uh, you know, you take home... If when I look at a homeless person, I see part of myself in them because mm-hmm. I know if I had been born into their circumstances, I'd be exactly yeah. the same. That would be me. Mm-hmm. And if they had been born into my circumstances, they would be the priest coming up to visit me in prison. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, we have to be non judgmental. And once we realize that everything we have has been given to us as a pure gift, mm-hmm. I didn't, I have good family, good friends, good education, good health. I didn't earn that. I didn't do anything to, to, to merit that. That was given to me as a free gift. So once I realize that everything I have was given to me as a free gift, you can't judge people. Uh, Because when you judge somebody, what you're really saying is, I'm a better person than you are. Mm. But once I realize everything I have was given to me as a gift, I can't judge anybody. I can't say I'm a better person than you. What I can say is maybe I got nicer gifts than you got. Yeah. Maybe I got more gifts than you got. But I can't say I'm a better person because everything I have was given to me. I didn't do anything to earn it. What would you say to those that weren't given and would look at that and say, not fair? It's not fair. Mm. But it's our fault. I mean, it's a human being's fault. It's not God's fault. So somebody who moves in, somebody is born into a family with a violent father. It's not God's fault Mm -hmm. that the father's violent. Uh, And there may be reasons why the father may have had traumas in childhood that are never addressed. Generational has passed down, uh, right? So, yeah, I'd say it isn't. It isn't fair. But we have a responsibility to try and uh, undo that fairness, Mm -hmm. to try and make that unfairness a little bit less unfair. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what we try to do with homeless people, try to make their lives uh, more positive and more Mm -hmm. constructive. And we do in many cases. We have five or six people working for us who were homeless drug users. Mm -hmm. And I'm regularly meeting people and they... They say to me, how are you, Peter? And I say, who are you? And they say, do you not recognize me? And I say, no. I say, well, I lived in your hostel 20 years ago. Wow. And I say, how am I supposed to recognize you after 20 years? And then they tell me they're doing great and they have a job and they have a family and they have a house. Mm. And it's great to hear that. Uh, you don't know that. You worked with them and maybe they were very difficult, some of them, <laughs> when you yeah. were working with them. Yeah. And then they move on and you don't know what happens but uh, when you meet people, and it's, it's happening quite regularly, when you meet people and they come back and they tell you how well they're doing, that's great. You know? Would that be the best part of what you do? That and also when you give a homeless person the key of their own apartment mm. and they move in and they look in, they just can't believe it. Yeah. This is a dream come true. And you look at the joy on their face. Yeah. And our apartments are really very, very, very nice apartments. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of our staff who are living in private rented accommodation are jealous. Yeah, I'm, I was just about to say, I was like, is there any spare going I could do with a move? <laughs> yeah, so when you see their face and they, yeah. you know, they just, uh, it's a dream come true for them. Yeah. Do, they, do you find in your experience that a lot of them find it very overwhelming? Because they're going from... They find it very lonely. Right, okay. You go from a hostel... Mm-hmm. Uh, where you're surrounded by people all the time, there's always something happening, and you go into your own apartment. Yeah, it's very lonely. We we've never really found a way of uh, of addressing that issue. We do have the drop-in center; they can come in there, yeah. and we do have things on in the drop-in center, like cooking classes in the evening and that that they can come to. But. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
We've never really found a way of uh, of addressing that loneliness. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you about your faith? Yeah, my faith is very strong. I believe in God, but I I, uh, I believe in a God who cares, a God of compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I grew up believing or being told about a God of the law, a God who lays down all these laws and your relationship with God dependent on how you observe those laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I reject that now. Um, you know, uh, for me now, God is a God who cares. And the God that Jesus revealed in the Gospels is a God who cares. Jesus lived with the poor mm-hmm. uh, during his public ministry. He ate with the people who were rejected and unwanted, the mm-hmm. tax collectors and the sinners. He, uh, he, he healed the sick who were rejected by society because they were considered to, have, uh, be, to be being punished by God for some sins they must have committed. Uh, so Jesus revealed a God who cares, who cares about not just getting our souls into heaven. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I, I don't think Jesus mentions that at all. <clears throat> he cares about our lives. And uh, the, the, in the society he was in, he cared about the poverty and the hunger and the rejection and the marginalization of people. Um, so he revealed a God who cares, and that's the God that I believe in, and uh, the God of compassion. And, you know, we're given our faith, not just to have as a personal, private faith. We're given our faith so that we can bring that faith to other people. Mm-hmm. We're a missionary church. The Christian church is a mission. We've got to go out and bring God to other people. But the only way you can bring the God of compassion to other people is by being the compassion of God. Mm-hmm. You can't preach a God of compassion from a pulpit. From a pulpit. You can only preach a God of compassion by being the compassion of God. So for me, God has imposed a responsibility on me and indeed on all of us to reach out to those who are suffering, to reach out to those who are in distress. I said, young people say to me, how do you know there's a God? And I say, I'll tell you how to know. Imagine somebody sitting at a river on a lovely sunny day enjoying themselves, the little child playing on the river bank, Mm -hmm. child falls into the river, Person jumps in, pulls them out, saves their life. Then I ask, what will the parents of that child do? Well, the first thing they'll do is, of course, go to the uh, hospital or wherever and see, make sure their child is all right. Mm-hmm. But what's the next thing they do? The next thing they'll do is they will want to find that man. They will want to find that man to thank him for what he has done for their child. Mm-hmm. So I say to young, pe- young people, you want to know there's a God? No point looking up in the sky. <clears throat> Look around you. Yeah. Look around at the pain and the suffering, the distress, the loneliness uh, of people. Reach out. Try and take some of that off their shoulders. And what will God do? God will want to find you. God will want to find you to thank you for what you have done for God's children. And when God finds you, then you will meet God. And then you will know that God exists. So I say you will not find God in your churches. And you will not encounter God in your prayers and in your hymns unless you first of all find God and encounter God in the pain and the distress and the suffering of people around you. Mm. So that's the God that I believe in, a God who's calling us to uh, relieve that. You know, we're all children of God. Every human being is a child of God. So God's family is uh, the whole human race. Yeah. 
And what Jesus came to do, Jesus came to show us how to live together as the family of God. <clears throat> now, in a family of four children, the parents don't give three of the children a nice big steak for their dinner and give the fourth child bread and jam. No, whatever food is available, everybody shares. Yeah. And yet in the family of God, one billion people on this planet go to bed hungry every night. And every one of those one billion people is God's beloved child. Mm-hmm. And no parent wants to see their child going to bed hungry every night. And God doesn't want to see God's children going to bed hungry every night. And in a family of four children, the parents don't give three of the children a nice warm bed, tell the fourth child to sleep outside in the back garden. No, whatever rooms are available, everybody piles in. And yet in the family of God, in almost every city in the world, there are people living on the street. And every one of those people living on the street is God's beloved child. No parent wants to see their child living on the street, and God doesn't want to see God's children living on the street. So Jesus had a dream, Mm. a dream that we could live together like a family. And what makes us Christians is not that we obey certain laws. What makes us Christians is that we share Jesus' dream, the dream of building a just world where every human being can live a happy, healthy and fulfilling life. That's what every parent wants for their child and that's what God wants for all of God's children. Mm. And that's the, the duty that has been imposed on us or the duty we have accepted when we become Christians. Mm. When we look at the young people today that you said ha- have asked you questions and have challenged you on that, um, do, do you recognise um, in culture today that maybe faith is not at the priority or not at the top oh, of a lot of the young people's lists? And do you put that down or do you attribute things like uh, drug addiction, mental health issues, um, just the, the kind of chaos society that where with social media and everything is very instant, instant gratification, things like compassion, gratitude, um, you know, uh, peace of mind, I suppose, seem to be getting further and further away from. Well, there's two different issues there. First of all, yeah, the uh, 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 there's far less faith today than there used to be, obviously. Yeah. I think that's a good thing. I think the faith we had back in the 50s and 60s was a very unquestioned faith. Are you referring to kind of the, of the church? The church, and, yeah. 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 Uh, it, was, it was more a social faith than yeah. a religious faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. But uh, what people are rejecting is the God of the law. The church laid down, you had to go to Mass on Sunday and you had to do this and you had to do that and you couldn't do this. Young people today are rejecting that and they're right to reject that. The God we have been preaching doesn't exist. The God of the law does not exist. That was the God that Jesus railed against in Mm. the the Gospels. Uh, I think people are rejecting a God that the church was for many, many centuries even uh, proclaiming uh, and they haven't found the new God of the church hasn't been hasn't been revealing the new God to them. Uh, I mean, if you ask young people today, what's their image of the church? What do they think of when they hear of church? They think of rules or regular and con- judgments and condemnations. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would love them to think, well, here's an organization that welcomes us, that really welcomes us, wants to listen to us, encourage us to get involved in, in working with people on the margins and showing us that working with people on the margins is at the very heart of the faith that we uh, that we have. So that's what I would love. But the other thing is, yeah, young people, they're under huge pressure, pressure that we were never under. I mm. never, I mean, 
the, the worst I ever did was smoke a cigarette behind <laughs> the wall of a of a school. <laughs> oh, young people tend to do, to break uh, to break the norms. Yeah. That's part of growing up. But today, breaking the norms is far more dangerous than it was when when I was growing up. And so they're subjected to drugs. I think a lot of young people will try drugs, see what they're like. That's you know that's normal. What for young people? Check mm-hmm. things out for themselves. Yeah. Uh, but that can can lead into a life of of addiction for for a small number of people mm-hmm. who try out drugs, and of course with social media, the whole relationship thing is uh, is is up in the air. They, the social media maybe that may be how they communicate with with friends instead of face to face. Yeah. And yeah. then of course there's the whole access to pornography which can be mm-hmm. so damaging. It can normalize. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, can normalize uh, what would I say unacceptable sexual behavior. Yeah. It just can become normalized. So, yeah, they're under huge pressure. Mm-hmm. Huge pressure and uh yeah, I don't know how we, we deal with that. We adults can't deal with that because mm-hmm. we haven't got a clue. <laughs> we yeah. never experienced it. And Absolutely. all we can do is condemn them. And uh, but yeah, I think we need to be training young people to work with young people. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, before I let you go, um, you obviously I know that if I was to ask you <clears throat> your hopes for the future, you would say to assuming to go out of business, yeah, to to, to homelessness to to be gone. Yeah. In terms of your personal hopes for the future, what would they be? Are they tied up in in the charity? Uh, well, I'm you, 70, you, you appear I'm 70, like a very selfless man. I'm seventy five. I don't have much future. Oh come on! <laughs> don't say but that. But as long as I have the energy <laughs> to, uh, to to, I want to continue working with homeless people. Yeah, our yeah. objective, as you say, is to go out of business. Yeah. Uh, I was given a, an Entrepreneurs Award. I, well, you've you know, been given quite a few awards I, now. I was given this Entrepreneurs Award and I was asked to say a few words and <laughs> I said, look, I, I'm in a very different position from all these other people getting entrepreneur. They're, they, what they want to do in the future is grow their organization. <laughs> what yeah. we want to do is to make it redundant. <laughs> uh, but as long uh, as I have the energy, yeah, I'll keep going. How has that... Um... The, the media aspect or the, the, the notoriety, I suppose, from what you do. How, how has that been over the years? Because, I, I mean, a lot, if you go to YouTube and you type in Father Peter McVerry, um, you'll find Miriam O'Callaghan, you'll find Brian O'Driscoll, you'll find all these, you know, influential people, you know, talking about how great you are. How, is, how has that been received? Uh, I actually don't like being the centre of attention. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually a very shy person. <clears throat> But I'm forced into it, yeah. uh, and if it's going to benefit homeless people, yes, mm-hmm. I'll uh, I'll do that. But I'm much happier uh, sitting in our drop-in centre listening to homeless people than I am with celebrities and uh, or being the focus of of media attention. No, I I, I uh, this is that's not what I that that's not what I want. It's not what re- what I relish. I. Uh, no, I just like to sit in a corner with homeless people and, <laughs> and let everybody ignore me. Brilliant. Well, on that note, I'll let you get back to them. 
because I know that's Grand. where you're going. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for coming in. I really appreciate it. That was a great chat, Pleasure. a great insight. Um, and yeah, long may the McVeary Trust continue. Thank you very much. Well, may it soon go out of business. Oh, go out of business. That's what we're hoping for. Sorry, we're, we're hoping for it to go out of business. Absolutely, okay. that's it. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.